This is NP Voices. I'm your host, Steve McLaughlin. In this episode, we'll discuss the overhead myth with the CEO of GuideStar, Jacob Harold. Author and consultant Pamela Groh joins the show to talk about ways to improve donor retention. And Jim Hackney, with Alexander Haas Consulting, will share his perspective on giving in the arts and cultural sector. That's all next on NP Voices. GuideStar, Charity Navigator, and the Better Business Bureau Wise Giving Alliance recently launched an initiative to end the overhead myth and start supporting nonprofit investments in sustainability and success. Jacob Harold, GuideStar CEO, now joins NB Voices. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Glad to be here, Steve. You're part of the group that includes GuideStar, Charity Navigator, and the Better Business Bureau's Wise Giving Alliance on your initiative having to do with the overhead myth. Could you start off by talking a little bit about why you guys wanted to focus on this particular issue and, and maybe how the initiative got started? Of course. I'm happy to. You know, I think everyone knows that the nonprofit sector as a whole and nonprofit organizations as individual institutions exist to make the world better. We don't exist for our own sake, exist in order to help build literacy in a poor community or save a threatened ecosystem or, or to create beautiful art. Profits do a better job than other ones, um, that there is such thing as true nonprofit excellence, and not everyone quite reaches that that level despite best of intentions. And so we're looking for ways to make judgments as donors, as journalists, as volunteers, as beneficiaries about which organizations are really excelling. And so there's a natural tendency to look for some sort of a metric to help us make a judgment. And that's incredibly important because donor dollars are scarce and they deserve to be respected. But unfortunately, you know, over the last couple of decades, what we've seen is this focus on one number, the overhead ratio, the percentage of a, a nonprofit's revenue that or expenses, depending on, on how you um, structure it, that goes towards quote-unquote program as opposed to fundraising or administrative costs. And it's a very understandable impulse to look for that number because it is theoretically comparable across nonprofits. But ultimately, I think it's clear to anyone who works in the nonprofit sector that the field's obsession with this has become deeply problematic. And people have moved beyond what the overhead was originally supposed to do as a metric, which is just to weed out a handful of fraudulent cases to be a filter to pull out those few organizations that really were not making wise use of donor dollars. And instead, we've taken it far beyond that initial intention and turned it into a proxy for performance. And it simply isn't that. And if anything, as research by the Bridgespan Group published in the Stanford Social Innovation Review, along with countless other articles, shows is that many times nonprofits are simply not spending enough money uh, on overhead, and in particular on their administrative costs, on planning, on strategy, on evaluation, on staff training, to ensure that they have strong governance systems, etc. And so what we want to do is shift attention away from overhead as a proxy for performance and recognize that it's one of many measures occasionally useful but that nonprofits are too complex and their work is too important for us to rely on this oversimplification that ultimately is a distraction that doesn't help us get to what nonprofits are really supposed to do, which is 
make the world better. To what extent do you think, you know, there's been some groundswell recently, and particularly, you know, like Dan Pilata's TED Talk that took this issue on, and, and like you said, other articles and research publications where it, it just seems like things are all coming together at a point in time post-recession where the sector is saying, hey, we need to look at overhead differently, and it's not necessarily should be used as a performance metric. We need to look at other areas to see how well individual charities are doing. You know, it, it has been interesting how there there has been a lot of activity lately. You know, I mean, people have been writing about how this was problematic for a decade. I've been personally talking about it for six years. But it is true that the last few years have seen a real shift. I mean, we saw Charity Navigator a couple of years ago shift from what they call Charity Navigator 1.0 to CN 2.0, their new evaluation system, which goes beyond financial ratios. We saw Dan Plata's talk. We saw research by the Bridge Band Group. We saw some terrific advocacy by the Donors Forum in Chicago, in addition to a whole range of other efforts. And part of it is there's just been a buildup of frustration that nonprofits have been starving themselves of necessary core expenses, of necessary infrastructure. And you know, we, there's been just enough frustration to finally want to stand up. But the other thing that's been really important is that we've seen a proliferation of alternatives. And there's no one single metric that can tell the story of nonprofit performance. But across donor reviews from great nonprofits or even beneficiary reviews, expert surveys from Philanthropedia, deep analysis from GiveWell, GuideStar Exchange program, including the charting impact profile that allows for structured qualitative descriptions of what nonprofits are trying to accomplish in the world. We've just seen an explosion of alternatives, and, and I think with that, a realization that we don't have to stay stuck on this one number, that we can have measurement systems that reflect the complexity and diversity of, of the nonprofit sector. And as you said, part of this really isn't really necessarily about overhead as a metric, but really how does the sector and, and donors in particular think about the role of investing from a nonprofit perspective, that investing in technology, investing in people, investing in better data or, or better donor retention programs, really, that's an investment that, that the organization is hoping to make a payoff, just like Apple making an investment or General Electric making an investment, that these are, these are things that organizations have to do to grow to meet their mission in, in some way or another. The right kind of investments, in particular in administrative costs, can be an investment. And the difference between this and an investment in the nonprofit sector is ultimately the return is not purely financial. The return is in program outcomes. The return is in results for people and communities and ecosystems that a better measurement system or a smarter strategy or a well-trained staff allow us to actually reap those those rewards. And, and ultimately, that's what we really need, need to, to stay focused on. And when you recommend that donors look at the whole picture of what a nonprofit's doing, not necessarily one particular metric, what are things that, you know, when you look at the data, when you're looking at what, what a, a good nonprofit is doing versus one that maybe isn't performing as well, what are things you think that's on that scorecard that says these are things that donors should pay attention to, but also what organizations themselves need to pay attention to as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the first thing that I look for is clarity. And it may seem like a simple thing, but it actually turns out that it's pretty hard to articulate in really clear terms what you're trying to accomplish as a nonprofit, how you're going to get there, what you're going to measure, et cetera. Um, and that's, that was the purpose of the charting impact framework that was jointly developed by GuideStar, Independent Sector, and the Better Business Bureau, which is now at the heart of our GuideStar Exchange program, which is the mechanism through which we've gathered data directly from about 95,000 nonprofits. So clarity to me is a first piece. A second is feedback, which is 
are nonprofits actively learning from their constituents? And different nonprofits have different kinds of constituents. So a homeless shelter, the homeless individuals that they're serving are a critical constituent. And a nonprofit's ability to gather feedback from them is really important, whether that's directly or through a mechanism like uh, greatnonprofits.org. Another organization, like, say, an advocacy organization working on Capitol Hill, their direct constituents may be staffers uh, uh, working in Congress. Um, so we have to think of something like feedback depending on the context the nonprofit is operating in. And a third thing is just a quantitative measurement system that that nonprofit has designed that they believe is appropriate for their work. And it may not measure outcomes per se, that is the final lasting results that sometimes can be hard to measure, but it sure better measure outputs and be an explicit accounting of the things an organization is doing in the world. And so if you have that mixture, measurement of feedback and of clarity, uh, I think you can be pretty confident that a nonprofit is, is really serious about creating social change. And I think our challenge in organizations like GuideStar is to bring together all these different sources and platforms that I mentioned and make it easy for donors. Because right now, I will admit that it's pretty hard for donors to make sense of all these different kinds of information on all these different websites. It's a lot of work. It's pretty confusing. And it's it's our job over the next couple of years to bring that together to make it easier to understand and ultimately easier to use. Circling back to the, the overhead myth initiative that you guys are working on, uh, a year, two years from now, what would you say you would, this has been successful, that you've seen some of the outcomes, not just the outputs that you were hoping for out of this type of a project? Um, that's a great question. You know, the truth is that when we got started, we weren't entirely sure what would happen. Uh, you know, we've been incredibly pleased that, you know, just in the first week of posting the letter, we had 12,000 people from 62 countries, you know, on our website and an explosion on social media that signaled to us that this was something that was ripe for exploration. So, you know, our hope is that a couple of years from now that the conversation in general will have shifted, but more specifically that behavior will have shifted. This is a really difficult thing to measure, but let's think about behavior on two fronts. So one is, um, is the behavior by individual donors. What are they looking for? Are we seeing spikes in the web traffic on some of these sites that I mentioned that are providing meaningful programmatic data? Um, are we seeing it cited more often by journalists who are writing with a donor audience? And then on the second side, and I think this is just as important, are we seeing an increase in the number of nonprofits that are explicitly sharing in systematic ways this more meaningful data? You know, the truth is that nonprofits bear some of the blame. Probably true that every year approximately a billion pieces of direct mail go out to the donors of America that prominently display the overhead ratio. And, and nonprofits have essentially trained donors that this is important. So as we can watch, and we'll have to figure out how to measure this. This is not an easy thing to measure. If we can watch how nonprofit communications change, how nonprofit fundraising changes, the percent of nonprofits that are sharing meaningful quantitative or qualitative data that goes beyond the overhead ratio with their donors, I think we can begin to, to declare at least partial victory. But I know this is also something that we'll be working on for many years to come. To your point, it's just important for the sector to keep going back to reinforcing what are the things that donors should focus on. And like you said, there may be a bit of rewiring that needs to happen at some organization in terms of how they, they think about this, but also how they communicate with donors about these issues. Um, that's exactly right. Jacob, appreciate you being on the show. Um, absolutely, Steve. Happy to share. And you know, hopefully we can talk in a couple of years and, and talk about how we've made some real progress. Fantastic. Sounds good. Thanks. All right.
Pamela Grow is a respected author, coach, copywriter, and nonprofit marketing consultant. When she's not busy working with nonprofit organizations, she takes some time out to come to NP Voices and, and share some things from the nonprofit sector. Welcome to NP Voices, Pamela. Oh, hey. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me here today. I know recently you've been spending a lot of time focusing on this issue of donor retention, and in particular, what can smaller organizations do to improve donor retention? Could you talk a little bit about why you've been focusing on that area and some of the things you've been doing? Well, mostly we've been focusing on it because it's been a problem in the industry for so long. I mean, really, for years and years. The the last report that I read, I think it was in um, the 2011 AFP Fundraising Effectiveness Survey Report, it showed overall donor retention at 41 percent. This was in 2010. So when you think about the fact that nonprofit organizations are losing like 70 percent of their new donors before they get a a second gift, it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, if you were, let's say, running a restaurant and seven out of every 10 people who came to your restaurant never came back, you probably wouldn't be in business for long. And and yet in the nonprofit sector, you're right. We see retention rates as low as 40%. We've even done some research to see that online donors often have even lower retention rates. While they are wealthier and younger and all those great things, they have less loyalty than traditional offline donors. Oh, exactly, exactly. I went to a conference, I guess it was last month, that was the Fundraising Success Magazine. It was their first ever conference. It was called the Engage Conference in uh, Philly. It was really different. They had they, they focused on three organizations who presented their case studies and they had they had all kind of made some amazing turnarounds. It was um, Operation Smile, HumanRights.org, and American Bible Society. And and it was so cool because what was really common in all three of them was a shift in a focus to the donor experience and donor retention, very much so. Like Operation Smile, they went from taking six months six months to getting a thank you letter out to 24 hours. American Bible Society actually went two years without any acquisition mailings whatsoever, which is really interesting. That is interesting. And I I like how you sort of phrased it in the way of people not thinking of this as donor retention, but more about what's the donor experience. Because ultimately, what translates into better donor retention is a positive donor experience. It's not retention by itself. It's the donor experience that drives everything. Exactly. The bulk of my giving tends to be really small gifts, um, 10 to $50, and I give to a lot of little organizations throughout the year. And I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've been thanked, which is really, really sad. That's really surprising because to me, the core essence of stewardship starts with acknowledging the donor, acknowledging the gift. Do you think that for some organizations... They're just not doing the traditional blocking and tackling that you need to do from a from a donor stewardship standpoint. Oh, I think so. Yeah, they're, I think I think they're starting to, to get it more because you see so much more out there now on uh, donor retention and, and donor attrition. I did want to mention something um, that was kind of cool because I just did every every month I do a book giveaway. I, I've got a little newsletter that goes out to about ten thousand subscribers, and every month I do a book giveaway, a book drawing. And so this month I asked 
organizations exactly how they're thanking their donors. And most of my subscribers tend to be pretty small. And is it okay if I share a couple with you? Sure, absolutely. Because they're really cool. Ron wrote that the one thing we've implemented in the last six months to build stronger relationships with our donors is a donor thank you call program. Members of our staff call donors just to thank them for their support. No ask, just thanks. The donors love it and the staff get to connect with donors. I think that's really important. That part about the staff and getting your board involved and getting everyone involved in the, in the thank you and the stewardship process. I mean, that thank you call idea is something we've actually been doing here at the Idea Lab on a, on a much larger scale. And I can absolutely tell you it works. And it's surprising when we sometimes talk to nonprofits to participate in some testing around it. They're a bit skeptical. Like, really, you're, you're just going to call and thank donors who have given, in particular first-time donors, and you're not going to ask them for another gift? you're telling me that this is going to increase my retention rate? And we're like, yes, it absolutely will. We've seen the data, right? It works. It's so cool, isn't it? And and not only, it's like a a win-win because it's so great for you too, for the person doing the calling. It kind of sets the tone for the whole day. Absolutely. And also what we found is when you do those calls, if you record, was it a positive interaction? Like, oh, you know, I just want to let you know I love XYZ organization and things you do. But also record sometimes when you may make a thank you call and it's a negative experience. Like, I'm glad you called because, you know, I've been trying to get my membership renewal cards done or something like that. And again, it's just another way to engage with a donor, whether they have a, a positive or a negative experience. They still have much better retention rates when you simply call and thank them. Absolutely. What were some other ideas that, that people shared with you that they found were working? Well, I, I love this one that came in from one of our um, Habitat for Humanities. She writes in, the one thing we implemented was homeowner thank you notes. Our stewardship had been, previously been, a form letter from the CEO with standard mission-centric language. The homeowners started handwriting notes saying what a new home meant to them and their families. And they've actually received donor calls saying, that's the first time I've ever received a note like that. They just absolutely love it. Any kind of handwritten notes. That is a fantastic way to connect the the giving experience to the outcomes, which we know donors really want to see. I've seen thank you notes done with scholarship programs where scholarship recipients will write thank yous. Uh, I've seen it in arts organizations where perhaps there was funding for a particular exhibit and people writing. So yeah, just it, it's not the executive director isn't the only person responsible for signing the thank you letters anymore or even writing them. Oh, absolutely. And I, like I said, I think it's really important in, whole, in developing that whole culture of philanthropy throughout the whole organization, getting everyone on board doing these calls or, or even doing thank you notes. I had a I had a client early on in my career, it was an Episcopal organization, and I would have their board members write thank you notes during a lull in the board meeting. They'd spend maybe uh, 15, 20 minutes writing thank you notes. And some of the people that got the thank you notes were just blown away. And it's amazing because I know a lot of nonprofit organizations pride themselves on the efficiency of which they do the stewardship. You know, we get our acknowledgement letters out within 24 to 48 hours and we've got our process down pat. But to a certain extent, they're sort of taking the soul out of <laughs> stewardship. And you've, you've pointed some really good ideas for how to sort of put the humanity back into acknowledging and stewarding gifts in some different ways. That's such a great point. I, I, I always refer people to um, Lisa Sargent's thank you letter clinic over on Sophie because she's got some really great tips on, on writing your thank you letters. But 
Lisa has actually said that if you absolutely cannot do that 24-hour thing, it's not that important as long as you absolutely get them out. And I've, I've sent out thank you letters as late as, um, gosh, I remember working with one organization and they hadn't had a... Um, development director for probably I think it was about six months so they were way behind and and we got those letters and and notes out as late as six months after the fact like you said doing it is sometimes more important than the efficiency or how quickly you know that it happens in particular for people who you know you're trying to engage with longer term from a donor perspective you obviously interact with a lot of nonprofit organizations and, and trying to get them to focus on donor retention what would you say are the Two or three things that are must-haves in any fundraiser's donor retention toolbox, right? When they reach into the toolbox, what are two to three things that they really need to make sure they're using um, or need to start using to improve donor retention? You know, I don't know that this is necessarily a tool, Steve, but I think I think it's really important to totally map out the donor experience from every standpoint. From, you know, the first time you acquire a donor via direct mail, you need to map out that whole experience. How long it takes to get the thank you letter out to them once the gift comes in, if you're making that phone call, and even what kind of next gift process that you have. And the same is the same with the uh, online and with event donors, um, with foundations. One thing that I always like to have on hand, too, is thank you cards. And pictures are nice, too. And just making those a regular part of what's happening. Or, like you said, mapping out all the different places where a donor might engage with the organization. Maybe they attend an event. They phone into the organization. You run into somebody at the farmer's market, whatever it happens to be, plot out all those potential twists, turns, and paths, and what, what will we do you know, with these individuals? What would we want to do? Oh, exactly. In terms of the event donors, I find a lot of organizations really think of their event donors as that one-time event donor. And if you map out a strategy for bringing them into the fold, you can, they can become long-term donors. You know Shannon Doolittle. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yep. she's got some brilliant strategies. Well, this is obviously an important topic, and I know you've also been engaged on something called the Donor Retention Project. So could you maybe just talk a little bit about that project for listeners? Oh, thanks. The Donor Retention Project is an awesome um, project that I was engaged in. I guess it was late last year where, together with Mark Pittman, we interviewed, I think it was about 12 different experts in the field of retention, including Dr. Adrian Sargent, Simone Wau, Roger Craver from The Agitator, Shannon Doolittle, Lisa Sargent, who I mentioned earlier. I don't know if you know him, but Jonathan Gropsis, mm-hmm. who's an Australian yep. fundraiser. And Jonathan's awesome. He's had amazing success with donor retention with monthly giving in uh, Australia, which is another thing that, that we haven't talked about yet, but I'm so sold on monthly giving. But anyways, this is a series of recorded interviews and worksheets and toolkits on a lot of different strategies to retain your donors. Jonathan talks in terms of stewardship. I talk in terms of stewarding your foundation donors. Shannon talks about event donors. We've got Lisa talking about writing the perfect thank you letter. There's a great template that's included. Mark's got some awesome tips on using social media, not just to say thank you, but to kind of keep an eye out on what's going on with your donors. It's just an amazing product. Well, it sounds like a great way for fundraising professionals to sort of sharpen those donor retention skills. Pamela, I appreciate you joining MP Voices and uh, looking forward to having you on a future episode. Well, thanks for having me.
Jim Hackney with Alexander Haas now joins me. And Jim, we're halfway through 2013, whether you believe it or not. And I'm curious, what's your perspective on the fundraising climate? And in particular, what are some of the things you're seeing with arts and cultural organizations? Steve, it's actually the most exciting time we've seen in several years. Last year, uh, giving to the arts sector increased 7.8% overall, and we're seeing those trends continue, even though nothing has been uh, specifically uh, recorded on a definite basis yet uh, for the trends of the first six months of this year. All the indications and all the earlier signs that we see is that uh, we're having even a, a larger increase in that this year. With the stock market, doing what it is doing, which is breaking its all-time high, as it has done this week. We are seeing um, the really top wealthiest Americans making some bigger gifts, and specifically in the cultural section, arts, culture, and humanities, uh, 71% of the money that is given to that group comes from the top 3% wealthiest Americans, and of course, those are the people that are most impacted by the rise in the stock market. So when there's more money at the top, they are tending to give more of it right now to cultural organizations. So we're seeing some really good impact gifts being made around the country. Very encouraging, very exciting, and certainly a time for people to be very active with putting their case for support. What's been the reaction of of organizations you've been working with to changes in some of the economic conditions and and that impact on fundraising? What are they saying from all this? Yeah, it's a really good question. A, A lot of what we're hearing from clients is the importance of the relationships that they stayed in touch with people throughout the recession and the ones that did a good job of keeping their development structures intact. And I'm afraid not all cultural institutions did that. Some uh, museums, symphonies, et cetera, we saw actually cut a lot of their development staffs during the recession if they were having to do across the board cut. And, th- and we're seeing the ones that did that are really harmed now because they don't really have the good relationships built with their donor base. But those that have had those relationships and have continued to work with people to listen to them are really seeing some very good results right now in approaching people about making uh, especially gifts of appreciated stock. It's a very favorable time for people to do, do that in their getting some good results from that. So we're seeing things like a couple of our clients we have encouraged recently to send stewardship letters out to donors of any sort of special gift that's been made over the last two or three years and just informing them not only what has happened with the money that they gave before, but also educating them about what a gift of appreciated property can do. And in the cases where that's happening, we are seeing some immediate response from people. The other thing that's happening is there's so much dialogue going on right now in Washington, D.C. about the tax law code and whether or not it will change, and especially the charitable deduction, that we're trying to make sure that our clients are, and I would recommend this to any nonprofit, making sure that their top donors are aware that that discussion is going on, and that even though we may not be able to predict how the tax laws will be next year, right now we know what they are, and we know what you can get as a tax deduction, especially on a piece of appreciated property, which is what a, a stock is that you may have bought at a low basis years ago and now is worth a lot of money because of this run-up on the market. You can gift that away, and it not nearly cost you as much money as it as it would have earlier. If the tax law has changed, we don't know what that will mean. 
but right now we do. So to encourage people who were ever thinking about the possibility of making an impact gift to our organization, uh, we should go ahead and encourage them now to consider doing it and to talk to their own tax advisors about that because it may be the best advantage, uh, tax advantage time for them to make that gift is in this year. And so we need to start those conversations now and not wait to December to have them. And unlike a bequest or a, a major gift where people may have a tax advisor involved, something like this may be something that uh, a prospective donor hasn't thought of, didn't know it was available as an option. So there is a timing nuance to this, if you will, of they may be thinking about there's changes happening in the stock market and a timely letter reminding them of this is an option, a way to support an institution, but also from a financial standpoint, the benefits may be, may be new to them that they're not aware of this. That's exactly right, because we haven't seen this sort of run-up in the market since 2006 or seven. I mean, we've never quite seen it. You know, one of the other things that I've seen that's just really fascinating to me, that to take it completely on the other end from the really top impact donors that they've taken advantage of the stock market to more general population, is the Freer and Sackler Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., which is the Asian art museum that's part of the Smithsonian, recently did a crowd fundraising campaign online to try to raise money to support an exhibition that they will open this October on yoga. They're calling it Yoga, the Art of Transformation. And they had a, a goal just to support this exhibition for $125,000. So they decided to go online and just see what they would have to do what they were able to do with the crowd fundraising for a campaign since this um, exhibition they felt would be so popular. Well, within 34 days, they raised $174,000 from over 600 donors. That's great. Which is just amazing. And it's the first time I've ever seen an art museum or any type of museum actually do crowdsource fundraising for a particular exhibition in advance of when the exhibition opened. And uh, they promised the donors to this that there'll be a revolving electronic thank you board in the entrance of the exhibition where their name will be listed. And uh, they've also asked people that were involved in yoga to spread the word about the exhibition. And you could become what they call a yoga messenger on behalf of the exhibition. And they've had 150 people to sign up for that just in this 34-day period. So the use of the Internet in our fundraising continues to shift daily as far as how people are approaching it and using it and what's been successful. And this is the first time we can really point to an exhibition at a museum that said, let's try it, and they did it and exceeded their goal. That's a really great example, and it makes me think of uh, another topic I wanted to sort of pick your brain about. I mean, you've been involved in some really large fundraising campaigns over the years and into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Do you think in this new normal world that the traditional large fundraising campaign is going to change or, or will change and that you may see a move towards smaller, more focused campaigns where engaging donors, engaging different types of donors is, is one of the objectives of the organization as opposed to these $100 million, $400 million large capital campaigns? You know, Steve, I think it all depends on the way the cultural institution has positioned themselves with their own constituency and who their constituency is. For the really top organizations in the country that people see are pushing the envelope on excellence, 
or they're changing the art form, if you will, I think we'll always see the potential of, uh, of a major capital campaign or a comprehensive campaign where we'll see these $100 million, $200 million plus things, only because sometimes you've got to put the big idea out there for your donors in order to get a big gift. And at the same time, our donors are becoming more and more sophisticated all the time. And instead of having an institutionally driven gift, which is what these big campaigns are, that's where an institution says, here we stand, we need to raise $100 million to enable us to do blank. That's what we call an institutional driven campaign, where they're going out to donors to do that. We're seeing more and more organizations that build really good relationships. They're able to accomplish a lot of new things by having individual donors approach them and say, you know, I've watched you all for a while. I've been involved with you for a while. I really like the good stewardship that I see happening with your organization. You're fulfilling your mission. You're doing good work in the community. I have $5 million I would like to give you to help you continue to do this educational outreach program or whatever it might be. So I do think we're seeing some of that as well. And that happens when wealth is being created as it is right now. We'll have some donor-driven gifts instead of just institutional-driven gifts. But if and only if the organization has done a good job maintaining relationships with those individuals in the off time, in the downtime when there wasn't money for them. I also think that an awfully good way for organizations to progress if they don't think they have the capacity to be involved in a big major campaign is to do what you suggest, which is what we would call an ongoing major gifts program, where they break down their projects instead of putting it all together and say, we're going to try to raise this $200 million to accomplish all this, to break it down into bite-sized packages and say, hey, let's go ahead and just renovate this one gallery first, or let's raise money to bring in this um, cultural series for our orchestra that goes out in the community and plays in underserved neighborhoods. Let's just raise this $500,000 that we need for that program right now, show people what we can do, and then that might generate some more interest once we get that sort of uh, momentum started. So, you know, there are lots of different ways to approach it. But the most important thing is is cultivating and asking and then being good stewards of those gifts once they're made and making sure you report back to your donors. Then you can start the process all over again. I think that's really some good advice, Jim. And I know you have the opportunity to spend a lot of time and consult with a lot of different nonprofit organizations, in particular in the arts space. What are one or two things you've seen recently that strike you as being really innovative ways of fundraising or engaging with donors in in different ways that maybe aren't being explored or you're not seeing elsewhere? You know, um, some really exciting things are going around institutions looking at their annual operating budget, and they may find it difficult to talk about sustainability or their ongoing work in a way that makes it exciting for donors. And the organizations, to me, the arts organizations, such as the Hartford Symphony Orchestra in Hartford, uh, Connecticut, or the Houston Ballet in Houston, Texas, uh, are two that come to mind that have done a great job of the Walters Art Museum in in Baltimore, Maryland, have all done just a great job of this, of really learning to tell their constituencies, look, what we do here day in, day out really makes a difference. And I think 
So oftentimes, cultural organizations make the mistake by thinking they have to have something really sexy or something, as we call sometimes, shiny to sell to a donor. Where in reality, it's the fact that every single day we are out there playing the music or every single day we have the gallery lights on and we are making this artwork available and doing outreach programs to educational groups in this community or we're inviting young people in to learn to move their bodies and to dance in a way that will give them self-esteem and excitement. You know, we've got to learn how to talk about our ongoing work all the time with our donors to make them appreciate the importance of sustainability. One of the things that's really changed coming out of the 2008-9-10 recession is that almost all donors now are asking us about sustainability. You know, how can this organization keep operating on and on and on through the years? So you've got to have a plan, and you've got to have that plan out there, but you've got to talk about your ongoing work as being really, really exciting. And the groups that are doing that are having really great success. You know, Yale University and Harvard and, and Stanford raise more money every year than the rest of the world does, not because they need it, but because they're excellent and they're doing a great job of telling their donors what that money will enable them to do. And we're seeing that true with the uh, arts organizations as well. I like how you phrase it as a focus on sustainability rather than overhead or other metrics. Jim, really appreciate you being on the show. Steve, thank you so much. I enjoyed being with you as always. That's it for Episode 7 of NP Voices. I'd like to thank our guests, Jacob Harold, Pamela Groh, and Jim Hattie. This episode is brought to you by the letter K. Thanks for listening.